the meal. It seems apropos given that we're sharing a communal meal today and that we've just individually celebrated one of the most American of meals, Thanksgiving. How did yours go? Sweet. Thanksgiving. It can go from sublime to the ridiculous, from frustrating to lonely, even when someone is actually with you. The primary function of a meal is to consume food, to meet biological needs, but we are social beings. Most of our social interactions involve food, and that's not by accident. We share life over meals. We sit there and we catch up with each other. We share stories over meals. My daughter did just the cutest thing yesterday. We share stories about meals. Oh, I went to this place called La Costanera in Montero, man. It was the best food I've ever had. We mark changes in our lives over meals. Baptisms, birthdays, weddings, funerals. The social experience makes all the difference. The food you could be eating could be absolutely great. But if the people surrounding the meal aren't so great, then the meal goes down in the lost column. Meals are core to our life experience, and so they become a part of our collective story. And this is why we're looking at four meals from the Bible today, to see that connection between food and narrative. Let's start with our first meal. Uh, It's the family ordeal that we go through. Here's a family. Hello, family. Families are supposed to be loving, and family gatherings are supposed to be reflective of that. (laughs) But they can turn into an outward expression of old hurts and grudges. Show me your angry faces. There we go. The time Uncle Ed gave the Warrior Playoffs ticket to your brother and not you. The time that your brilliant cousin Jill, the golden child, got into Harvard and got praise from everyone. And that same year, you got into De Anza College, and no one recognized it. Sorry. (laughs) The time your mom and your aunt fought over who gets the flower arrangements after your grandmother's funeral. True story. Or the time your father and cousin simultaneously extolled the virtues of the presidential candidate that you... Didn't like so much for about 10 minutes after Thanksgiving dinner. Also a true story. Because you never dealt with those issues. They fester and they lead to deeper wounds and more antagonistic or passive-aggressive interactions. Maybe even happened last Thursday. The Bible offers its own family meal or uh, ordeal with the story of the twin brothers Jacob and Esau. They were at odds with one another from the beginning of their lives, and that was spurred on by their parents. By the way, parents, learn something from this family. Do not play favorites. When they were adults, it only continued. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Because of this long-held rivalry, 
Both brothers made poor choices. Esau was giving something away that was given to him. And for short-sighted reasons, immediate gratification. Jacob took advantage of his brother's circumstances to take something that was not meant for him. One family member has ripped off another family member on a business deal made while cooking and eating a bowl of stew. The wrong family member, Esau, now just doesn't want his birthright back. He wants Jacob's head. And so Jacob runs, leaving behind his family. This meal was bad news. Our second meal we'll call the fast food meal. And let's see, some busy people. Let's see. Oh, the college students over here is perfect. (laughs) Tons of students right here. Perfect. So, raise your hand if you have ever eaten while walking or driving. Pretty much everybody, yes. Who has ever eaten at your desk at work? (laughs) This is all part of our get-up-and-go efficiency culture. I can multitask, but when I can't, I'm just going to wolf down some food so I can get to the really important stuff. When I was a kid, we would have lunch recess at school, and eating lunch was just a formality. The important part was playing kickball. And the more time you wasted eating, the less time you spent playing kickball. Therefore, every kid in my class ate their lunch in three minutes or less so we could really get down to business. And this is how it feels in our world now. To keep up with our hectic schedules, we have the advent of fast food, TV dinners, on-the-go prepackaged meals. Blue apron, anyone? Restaurants with standing tables. That means no chairs. And the weirdest one to me, meal replacement drinks. Soylent. It's made of people! The older crowd got me. All right, I'm with you. All right. The rest of y'all watch the movie. The slow food movement was designed to counter this hurried nature. But, and part of that was communal meals. But the speed of life, as we go from place to place, eating as we go, as we try to do multiple things at once, feeding our child and also doing our work, and just trying to get from place to place, trying to get everyone out of the house at the right time so we can get to where we need to go. All those things can lead us to distraction. The speed of distraction, the speed of connection, The speed of disconnection from others, active or passive disconnection, can lead us to eat alone a lot of the time. And let's be honest. If you have time to sit and talk, then in the back of their mind, you're thinking, I'm not as busy as I should be. This hurry-up-and-go meal is not unheard of in the Bible. In fact, one of the most key meals in our story was exactly that. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight's. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, if you were at this meal, this might be what you're thinking. My people, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my parents, my children, have lived 400 years in slavery to the Egyptians. And suddenly, a man who has no one has seen in 40 years, and who was a murderer, by the way, 
returns from the desert, tells us that the God we'd forgotten was now freeing us from our bondage, and nine miraculous events were to take place. And now we're told to eat this evening meal of hard bread, bitter seasonings, and a roasted lamb that we didn't butcher. We roasted it whole with all of its guts and organs still in it as though we didn't have time to prepare it properly. We can't save any leftovers for tomorrow, and we're standing here eating at our tables in the middle of the night, and we're fully dressed to go on a journey even though we're going to bed after this. And now we're rubbing blood on our doorposts? What's going on here? Hang in there. Our next meal is called the Nothing Good Happens After Midnight Meal. This is the meal I'm scared of the most. And I'm going to pick this table right here because they look like a bunch of people that do not do anything good after midnight. <laughs> is it? Well, in some cases it might be. Thank you very much. And what I mean by nothing good happens after midnight is that when sketchy things happen and when people make bad decisions, they tend to happen late at night. And that includes during meals. In my college days, I used to make the late-night jack-in-the-box runs with friends and get those tacos for a dollar that were not good for you. Or hit the local 24-hour diner, most likely Denny's, after a midnight movie or a house party. And then often those places were packed with other people doing the same exact thing. Because I was in Davis. There weren't many options. And when you have multiple groups of tired, hungry, and sometimes drunk people looking to hang out and eat and all filling the same crowded space, people are primed to make bad decisions and misunderstandings will take place. Those people will be characterized as the bad people and the good people would be smart to avoid those people because a person is judged by the company he keeps. The Bible offers an example of a meal like this. When Jesus had dinner with a supposedly corrupt, dirty government official and his buddies, all acknowledged to be bad people. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is eating with a group of people that the good people have labeled as the outcasts, sorry, or the losers. Some of them might be living on the edge and are ashamed of it, while others might be living over the edge and absolutely proud of living over the edge. While that's happening, the good people are standing there, (laughs) annoyed with the fact that one of us is hanging out with them. Hmm. Doing this can ruin your reputation, Jesus. Just get out of here while you can. These people will just drag you down. (laughs) And finally, we have the meal... When it finally hits you. The hardest meal to eat after a loved one dies is not the funeral repast or the lunch after the memorial service. It's the meal after those. When you're eating a regular meal and it hits you, 
that this is the new normal. That person is never joining you for another meal again. Dealing with that new normal is one of the most difficult things you can do. And it comes not in special events, but in the tedium of life. On uh, Christmas of 2015, I sat around the kitchen of my parents' uh, table in uh, Las Vegas. We were surrounded by family members, maybe 20 or 30 people. And we shared the things that we loved about 2015, the things that we struggled with about 2015, and the things that we hoped for for 2016. The common thing that people hoped for, that we'd all be there together again, standing in that kitchen one year later. After we prayed and started eating, my mom burst into tears. And I said, what's the matter with you? She said, I pray to God, and I want you to be married. (laughs) Everyone laughed just like that. And I said, well, you better pray for something else, because that's not happening. (laughs) On Thanksgiving of 2016, I sit around the kitchen of my parents' home in Las Vegas, surrounded by family members, including my new wife and her mother, without my mom, who had died 45 days before. And although we were thankful to be together again, we realized that our prayer from last Christmas wasn't answered as we hoped. My mother wasn't there, and her absence cast a pall over everything. This kind of meal happens not only when someone passes away, but at any time your plans fall through. You experience a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. You lose your job, or your side loses an election. In any case, your hopes and dreams are dashed to pieces. And for a while, you're just lost. The Bible offers an experience like this. Jesus had been executed and buried, and his followers were lost, disillusioned by not only the end of their leader, but the end of their movement. Some of them were heading home. The very, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about what happened, about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how there our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. What could be going on in their heads? We're getting out of here. There's nothing here for us anymore. Our teacher was expected to bring us out of this life that we're living and into a new life, a new way of living, a new community. But now he's dead. And we're grieving not just his absence, but the loss of everything his presence meant. We're not even sure this community we built around him will continue. We're going home. These four meals each reflect a part of the human condition, dealing with anger, busyness, shame, and regret. And so we can look at our lives 
and find parallels to each of these. However, sometimes we look at our lives in their components, the pieces that assemble our lives, and not the whole, just as sometimes we tend to read the Bible as just one story at a time and not one collective whole. We might look at a story in the Bible and say, that's what it says, that's all there is. But the truth is, there's a lot more to our lives, and there's a lot more happening in these stories. If we do look deeper, we can see that each one is wrapped inside of hope. Let's look deeper at the family meal or ordeal. Look contentious, look angry. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Remember, Jacob had made a bad deal with Esau over a bowl of stool, and Esau wanted him dead for it. Jacob fled and was gone for 14 years at least, growing his family and his possessions during that time, but eventually it became time to face the music. Esau was coming for him, along with 400 men, and Jacob realized there was no way out of this. He prepared himself to lose everything, his belongings, his wife and children, his wives and children, even his own life. But the night before he met Esau, Jacob had a physical encounter with God. And the next morning, Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He himself went out before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, The fine favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob had set up this elaborate bribery scheme to appease Esau. But he didn't realize that God had been working on Esau's heart for the 14-plus years they had been apart. Jacob didn't know that God had blessed Esau with family and possessions and had quieted the murderous anger that Esau held toward his brother. What this shows us is that there is always hope for reconciliation. Families can be made whole again. And what exists now between brothers is not, or sisters is not set in stone. Why? Because God wrestles for you. He strives for you. And he goes before you. God's working with the sister who made the insulting remarks about you last month. God's working with the son who hasn't spoken to you in months. And he's working on you too. Time doesn't heal all wounds. But it sure does allow for God to mend those hurts. Now let's look at the fast food meal. You guys are busy, right? You don't even have time to, you barely have time to sit down here and listen to this. You're just ready to go, right? Class! All right. So these people have spent 430 years in slavery. What's one more night? And what's with the hurried preparations and the fast eating as though we're actually going somewhere? We're not going anywhere. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt 
and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time the people live, of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout the generations. What was soaked in this meal of standing up and hurrying was the hope of change. Moses had been telling us that God will take us out of this land, and it's going to happen. Be ready and have faith that this is happening. And watch, God does it. Us rushing through this meal is not going to be in vain. What was permanent, 430 years, is now temporary. One night, a way station on the journey to where we're headed. Their slavery ended in an instant. No, a run to McDonald's or a trip through the drive-thru at Taco Bell shouldn't be a way station on the journey. But it kind of is, isn't it? For that reason, the story tells us, we need to mark the time. God commands the people to recount the story from that day forward. It is temporary. So remember what life is like at that moment. Stop and consider and dream of the future. You're going from one spot to the next, but in the middle, savor that moment. Remember what God has done for you and what he's about to do for you. Give thanks. So the next time you're wolfing down food to get through the really important parts of life, stop and smell the roses or the french fries. Take a moment to be grateful and recognize that this moment of gratitude is just as important as all those other moments in your life that are filled with accomplishment. And as for our folks over here, our troublemakers, what about the good people, the people where nothing good happens after midnight? Remember, Jesus was hanging, Jesus was hanging out with these bad people, and the Pharisees were giving him grief about it. And when the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're one of, not just the people at the table, I'm sorry. If you were one of the bad people, if you see yourself as one of those bad people with no thought or hope of interacting with good people, the answer is pretty clear. Jesus is not avoiding you. In fact, he's going straight to you. He went out after midnight, went to the Denny's that you were sitting at, and he sat down at your booth, and he's asking to hang out with you. Whatever others perceive as making you unworthy to society doesn't bother Jesus. One of the good people, the best person, in fact, appreciates you and your friendship. No strings attached. He'll hang out wherever you are. But if you see yourself as one of the good people who refuses to sit down with bad people in order to avoid being tempted, that can be reasonable, especially if you have some issues that could be sparked by being in this environment. So, for example, if you're an alcoholic and you're going to a bar, maybe that's not the best place for you to be. But AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, has a great program with sponsorship. So even though you're not necessarily going to the environment, you're still spending time with the people that need your help. 
you will never be able to truly love someone at arm's length. And notice this. If the person out there that is willing to spend time with you, if it's the best person out there, Jesus, then maybe everyone else isn't as bad as you think. Maybe it'll take a little time and effort and a few setbacks, but if you're redeemable and worthy of God's attention, maybe so are they. Maybe they're all really one of us. And so what about our last table? What about the meal when it finally hits you? We have the story of these two people that are walking home. They're grieving the loss of their teacher and their friend, and maybe the movement, the loss of the movement and the community that they've committed so much of their lives to. They find themselves with an apparent stranger, a fellow traveler with whom they share their grief. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Where is the hope in grief? Pardon my bluntness, but it's pretty simple. It's right in front of you. Jesus shows up present even as they lament his absence. It's only after they realize this fact that they realize that their time with him wasn't wasted, that there's more to what we've been seeing, that our circumstances are not simply what has just happened, that the movement isn't over. Now, I just said that the hope in your circumstances is right in front of you. The problem is, with all of this, that hope can be invisible. Even after you see it, it can go missing. When you're grieving, people expect you to snap out of it, to go through the process and get through with it, and then just be okay. But you can't. Things will never be the same. You have to come to terms with that, and you have to make time to do so. My mother will never be at a Thanksgiving dinner with me again. She will never talk to my wife over a meal again. Where's the hope? It's in realizing that my mother's prayer was answered, that I did get married, and that our new hope was that whether we were together or apart, and whether we would remember anything, all the traditions, all the things that we had built together, all the things that had been passed down, the love and the kindness and the joy and the generosity, all that would go on and be shared with the people around us, whoever they might be. They could be family, they could be friends, they could be our church community. It took Jesus' his followers weeks of prayer, interaction with him, and a dose of the Holy Spirit before they could fully realize what happened. So if you're feeling like you can't get past the grief right now, give yourself a break. It takes time, and God is with you. So, we find ourselves here and now at a meal celebrating a holiday. This isn't unlike another meal in the Bible, where 12 people gather to eat an annual holiday meal, just as they had done their entire lives with their families. But this was different. They were apart from their families, and a part of a new family. 
led by a man they had just met three years earlier. The man was their teacher, and he added new meaning to traditions that they had experienced before, namely that of the breaking of the bread and the drinking of wine. And under the surface was the fact that their teacher was grieving over the suffering he was about to experience. And the person who was going to betray him was lying there right next to him, pretending nothing was happening. Every meal that we share together as the church, as the body of Christ, has this blend of tradition and newness, of happiness that we share, and of pain and grief that we don't want to speak about. And in the center of all of it is hope. The hope that what God has been building before our eyes and behind the scenes is coming to pass. We will see it built. We are among the builders. And as we eat today, and as we share our stories, our holiday traditions, our happy narratives, if you can, also share those stories of pain and regret. You come here as yourself, as no one else. And Jesus wants to meet you here, just as he wants us to meet with you. So, we're going to do communion as a representation or as a remembrance of the steps that Jesus went to, the length that he went to as a sign of love for us. So as with the first Passover, uh, would you all stand? And we'll be uh, eating uh, via intinction. So, uh, ink tincture, excuse me. So you'll be taking a cracker, dipping it in the juice, and then consuming it together. On the night before Jesus gave his life for us, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. Please. So a couple of dozen years later, uh, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, and they had an issue. And the issue was that when they would eat the Lord's Supper, it would be included with a meal, as normal. But some people did not have the money, the finances, the wherewithal to bring food with them. So the folks who had more brought their own food and ate that there. And the people who had nothing went hungry. And Paul says, when you come and eat together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do, I not have, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you just do despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So this is just a reminder that as we go out, we're often struck by the fact that we have so little. We think we don't have much. But in contrast to so many other people around us, we have a lot. And so as we eat this meal today, let's remember that we're all equal. We're all below the cross. We're all sinners in need of love. We are all people that are wonderful and worthy of everything that God gives to us. Thank you for joining us.